The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we're going to revisit the U.S.-China-Africa story because this is a rapidly evolving story right now. There are a lot of moving parts. And really, in the past two or three weeks, the situation seems to be evolving quickly. One of the things that I've been writing about in the newsletter, in the commentaries every day, is how it is now no longer sufficient for African countries to simply say that they do not want to be stuck in between the United States and China and become collateral damage or somehow be, you know, squeezed between these two powers as the intensity of the fight between the United States and China ramps up. And one of the things that we've been talking about in the newsletter is how African countries are going to have to start articulating very clear policy positions to define what it is that they actually want from both powers. And what we're seeing right now is at that is actually starting to take place in Kenya. So let me bring you back last week, Kenyan ICT minister, Joe Machuro. He has been a longtime critic of the United States on the Huawei issue. And last week came out very clearly, once again, to reiterate Kenyan sovereignty on the issue. Here's a quote that he said. He said, I have not seen any letter or document about stopping the project. And he's referring to Safaricom's rollout of 5G using Huawei equipment. And we cannot stop even if we are asked to do so. We are an independent country. There's the kind of reference to sovereignty. He added uh, in an interview with Business Daily, uh, the government does not deal with vendors. It's the service providers who will decide who to work with. So there we go, saying that a very clear position to the United States, don't push us on Huawei simply because the public sector doesn't have a role in this. It's the private sector. Now, let's go to last weekend on Sunday. Health Cabinet Secretary Mutahi Kagwe uh, delivered what is, in my view, a stunning blow to China's mask diplomacy initiative in Africa. If you recall, going back to the very earliest stages of the COVID-19 outbreak, China took a very aggressive stance in donating PPE, personal protective equipment, and other supplies it started with the Jack Ma Foundation, and it's been a key part of Chinese foreign policy in Africa since March in all of this. Now, on Sunday, the cabinet secretary, when delivering his normal update on COVID-19, made some comments about China and their the PPE, and he personally confirmed that products sourced from China failed to pass quality tests by the Kenya Bureau of Standards. He refers to this as KEBS. Let's listen to what Cabinet Secretary Mutahi Kagwe said. Let me start with, um, let, me start, let me start from the top uh, regarding the issue of uh, masks that are uh, supposedly uh, raised by KEBS. I'll tell you something. I did take myself to KEBS. I took some Chinese PPEs and they failed the tests personally. So goes uh, forthwith, we have not imported Chinese products because the Kenyan products are good enough or not even better 
than the ones from um, elsewhere. Now, this is very, very important here. A couple of different things to think about here. Number one, it feeds right into the United States narrative about PPE and the shoddy quality that that's their words. That's from the United States, from people like Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, and also Assistant Secretary of State Tibor Naj. Uh, but at the same time, it is a massive setback for the Chinese. Let me quote you from Cliff Mboya, who's a very, very astute observer of China-Kenya relations. Uh, he's a recent PhD doctorate at uh, Fudan University in Shanghai, and he tweeted right after this decision was, now, was made by Health Cabinet Secretary Mutai Kagwe, Chinese PPEs failed the test. With this single stroke, China's corona diplomacy in Kenya goes to the trash. A key rule in diplomacy is never reinforce negative perceptions or narratives. They stick like glue. This is what the public will remember. Kobus, all of this is now being put together in the giant mixing bowl of U.S.-China geopolitics that's there. I don't know if the health cabinet secretary was actually intending to be part of this, what his motivations were, whether or not it was actually to push back on the Chinese or it was to support local PPE producers, but it is now part of the mix. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's interesting to see them them pushing back on the U.S. and the, and the Chinese almost in the same week. Um, you know, and it, it clearly tries, or it seems to me anyway, to you know, to, to try to kind of put uh, to stake a claim essentially for for Kenyan the Kenyan government's decision making power and and by extension Africa's decision making power and of course this is also happening against the background of very heated discussions in Nigeria about Chinese debt um, and you know kind of a pushback several times pushback from the South African government against America on on the Huawei issue so it's it's interesting to see these African governments kind of like like refusing to choose one or the other refusing to kind of fall into the kind of Cold War logic that we've seen being promoted from both both Beijing and Washington. Let's get two perspectives on where we are at this moment right now in the U.S.-Africa, the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. We have two of the best voices and binds uh, available for you today. Jude Moore, who's the former Liberian Minister of Public Works and now a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. Also, Judd Devermont, who's the director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, both have been writing and thinking about where we are at this moment just in the past week. There have been two really important essays coming out of both of these gentlemen. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedules, and a very good morning to you. Good morning, guys. Great to be back. Good morning, uh, Eric, and thanks for having us. Good morning, Kobus. Thanks for having me. Okay, Judd, let's start with you. You made a, a, a case for a fresh start. You wrote a, a, a position paper. U.S. policy towards Africa has been mired in old thinking for too long. As we are seeing in a place like Kenya and also similarly, as Kobus mentioned, in Nigeria, uh, things are in motion now. Uh, and, and so talk to us a little bit about the case for a fresh start that you're talking about in the context of all the events that we're seeing going on right now. Yeah, thanks, uh, Eric. Thanks, Kobus. I think that the U.S. government has, on balance, a positive record uh, in Africa over the past couple of decades. But um, I think that when we look at 2020, it just feels like we're running on empty. And so through this paper, I wanted to check our assumptions. I wanted to challenge some of the conventional wisdom, uh, receive wisdom about what our policy should be. And so we did at CSIS, my think tank, a number of debates. Actually, Jude was at one of them. 
And we challenged everything from democracy, economic engagement, how do we think about China? And really, we came up with three conclusions that we put in the paper. And I think they all have an element of how do we think about China and Africa as well. One is that the U.S. really needs to focus on having normal relationships with Africa. We tend to treat Africa as this region apart. And what we need to be thinking about is strategic relationships, engaging with African countries because um, we believe they're important and they are critical to sort of advancing U.S. and African shared interests. And that means not just meeting with an African leader because we like them and we think that they are a stand-in for a value that we are interested in, but also, or at least in addition to that, because there are strategic things at the table and that we need to use uh, all of our elements of power to sort of have that relationship mature and advance and grow. Second is that we have to think about Africa as a global player. And I think this is where we kind of are stuck, is that we talk about Africa really just about African issues, and we undercut that what happens in Africa does change the world. And that means thinking about Africa's power in international forum, something that China certainly does very well, uh, but also thinking about how whether it is uh, the little country of the Gambia taking the Ro uh, Myanmar to the ICJ over the treatment of the Rohingya. Uh, it's really thinking about how do Africans play in a number of different things across the globe. And then that should actually increase the strategic value and the attention that Africans get. Um, this also should, as you always say, Eric, this should force the U.S. government to show up more often because you, they recognize the strategic importance. And the last point is really, how do we talk to Africans and talk to the Americans about Africa? And I think that uh, in the case of talking to Africans, I think we need to be a lot more humble uh, and a lot more honest about our values and our goals, what we can and cannot do, what are the challenges that we have within our own society, whether it's racism or our democratic system. And then I think to Americans, we got to be honest about the economic opportunities. We've got to ditch the banal seven fastest growing economies uh, factoid. We need to talk to them about why you would invest in Benin City versus Bangkok versus Birmingham. And we have to talk about why Africa and Africans are changing the way Americans live. They're in our earbuds. They're t preaching at our at pulpits. There are doctors. And I think that if we have that kind of public diplomacy, I think we can have a more serious relationship with the continent. Judd, um, you know, I'm reading at the moment, I'm reading um, Kishore Mahmoubani, um, you know, and, and his, his kind of um, account, of, um, that I think was published earlier this year, of, of the, the, the current U.S.-Chinese tension. Um, and one of the points that he makes is that, that U.S. diplomacy is frequently really beholden to um, to to domestic agencies, that it's very difficult for U.S. diplomats to maneuver or to to really to, to you know to, to to really freely negotiate because because to a large extent what they can offer has already been predecided by by negotiations between domestic agencies in the U.S. Um, to which extent do you feel it's possible to make to free up you um, American diplomats to, to be able to to engage more you know kind of more creatively with Africa? Yeah, I think there's two different things that are happening, and I'm not sure I entirely. I agree with that thesis. But first is that unless you are able to convince the, uh, the foreign policy apparatus that Africa is important and that is worthy of senior engagement, all you do is rob Peter to pay Paul. You take money from Nigeria to send it to Ghana. You take the time and attention of the assistant secretary uh, in Mozambique, and then you go to Congo. So you're just, you're working with the same amount of resources. You're not able to tap into 
greater uh, foreign policy engagement because all you are working with is the, the pot that you have. But then there's the second part, which is working with Congress to actually appropriate money uh, to do some more creative things. African, the budget for Africa is one of the most earmarked and directed. So they have very little flexibility. And then I think it's a little bit to the, the critique that you were sharing, Cobus, is how do you convince domestic agencies that there's a real value? How do we tap into USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture? How do we think about the U.S. Department of Transportation? And then how do we talk to American citizens and American cities and municipalities about Africa's potential? This is something that we're doing at CSIS. We've been writing papers on why Africa matters to St. Louis and Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, we're trying to take this conversation outside of the Beltway. And I think that's one of the ways that you unlock uh, some of the, the resources and time and attention that are right now really only the purview of, you know, lower level people in the State Department. Jude, let me get your take on this, because I think you approach these issues with a, a little bit more skepticism and cynicism in terms of the rest of the Washington Beltway. In a Twitter Twitter thread that you published last week, Africa's position in the new Cold War, uh, I'll put links to it in the show notes, it got a lot of attention, thousands of retweets, comments, and likes. Uh, it really resonated with a lot of people. And you basically make the case, uh, and I'm scrolling down now to, to the lower part of it, you said, where is the European or American equivalent alternative to China's BRI? So if Judd is making the case for more engagement, you're pointing out that the Chinese are already there. Where is it? If Chinese loans are deceptive and are a trap and are wrong, where are the Western alternatives? How come our quote-unquote shared values do not exclude building our infrastructure? Uh, Judy, give us your take on kind of where Judd is coming from, but kind of where the mood is in Washington in terms of Africa, as you express it in your Twitter thread. Judd and I, we, we have these conversations offline and online. And I think to an extent, um, they, I made a more radical argue, argument in the thread. But Judd is making the same argument, but he's making it as an American to his government. I, for, for my part, see it as an African, the one on whom that uh, that policy or those policies have been enacted, the one who's responding to those. And I think insofar as the U.S. is concerned, it's almost as if the last 20 years didn't happen. And insofar as Europe is concerned, it's almost as if the last 200 years didn't happen. There is a sort of assumption, I think, in the discourse that sort of Africa, it, 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 there's the implications of the illegitimacy of the active the actions of non-Western actors on the continent, right? So if China is there, then invariably Chinese in, intentions and motivations are malign, right? If if whoever is on the continent, if it's not a Western actor, their their intents are a suspect. So what I tried to do in my tweet last week was to be able to establish, look, we have over two centuries of receipts that show that your intents on the continent have not been denied. Right. I mean, so some of the things that China has done in the last 20 years, you haven't done in 200 years. So to, to, to continue to take Africa for granted in this rising tension to sort of assume that Africa is going to sort of take the side of the West is, is just ridiculous. And, and, and so I think the Chinese have come in with what I call a very attractive pitch to African governments to say, look, look at us. We used to be in the exact position you're in. 
And, and until we turn our backs on the West and went our own way and tried to do things the way we thought, we didn't get anywhere. We can help you to get to that point. For example, you're not going anywhere if you can't build infrastructure and we'll provide the financing, we'll provide the construction of that infrastructure for you. We will provide you opportunities so that your people can be able to go to school. Oh, you, you can't go into, you can't get into schools in the West. If you want to build the, the soft capital, if you want to build the human capital, we will provide you opportunities. So I think the Chinese pitch has been real. And so, and then on the other side, I mean, it's not as if the Chinese pitch or the Chinese relationship is perfect, but you get the U.S. State Department and U.S. officials who are just unrelenting in the criticism of China. And so my point is, what is the alternative? What else? So if, in, if, if Kenya, if South Africa, if Nigeria tomorrow decided that they were going to walk away from Huawei's hardware, Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for the replacement uh, um, hardware they use? It's almost like you walk in and say, like, walk away from the opportunities you have now, but make no comment whatsoever about what comes after that. Yeah, I mean, if, if they were to walk away from Chinese components for their IT, the U.S. doesn't even have an American company in that space. We're going to have to turn to Ericsson or Nokia. And so I, I think there is this, this assumption that you know, the past didn't happen and Africa is just, uh, uh, I guess, in the Western camp in terms of being able to do that. And so I think, um, like Judd says, there has to be a, a real radical rethink of how the U.S. engages uh, uh, the continent and, and take advantage of, of some of the things that the, the Chinese have done. I feel, you know, and we've made this argument again, that Africa's economic importance to China is not as, is not as high as Africa's political importance to China. China doesn't have a lot of friends. And so for legitimacy of Chinese actions, whether domestic or international, China is going to continue to look to that vote rich 54 country block for legitimacy. And so I, I think that if the West wants, you know, to engage Africa, then it has to be on a more substantive basis. And, and it has to be based on what Africa's needs are, not simply what Western values they, 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 they're pushing at the moment. Guys, can I just add something to Jude's comments? Because I think we see this exactly the same, is that one of the failings of U.S. policy towards Africa under the Trump administration is that it's entirely unilateral. Uh, it is the U.S. Um, criticizing Africa for what it does with China. Um, and it is not thoughtful about uh, a whole host of countries that are engaging in Africa that have some concerns about China, maybe not as hard-edged. And if we want to do what Jude is talking about in terms of really growing the infrastructure, the U.S. has to do that in partnership with European countries, but also countries in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia and in South Asia. And I think we could do a tremendous job in terms of addressing some of uh, Africa's needs uh, in conversation if we were doing this um, jointly with uh, whether it's development banks or the IFES or, or partners from, from Vietnam to India uh, to Bulgaria. Uh, but we don't do that right now, and I think that's been a huge failing on the U.S. approach. The IFES, just for those of you keeping note at home, is the international financial institutions. That's Beltway speak, Mr. Devermont. We're trying to make this successful to sorry. everybody. Kobus, go ahead. Okay, so so to, to both of you, as, as people who, who spend a lot of time in D.C., um, you know, we, we've seen over the last while this real kind of 
you know, a very rapid kind of drumbeat about uh, this quote-unquote new Cold War between China and the U.S. to the extent that it's now almost been institutionalized as a way of thinking. Um, how, how, like, how serious do you see this as, a, as an issue post November um do you do you foresee that that um say say um there is a democratic victory in, in November in the US do you foresee this kind of drumbeat about about trying needing to contain China continuing as is or which way do you do you foresee it going particularly in relation to Africa i i, I think the the here it is accepted wisdom that um something has to be done about China's rise how that happens is going to be different. I think the, crit the critique of the Trump administration has been that it has done so without a strategy, has been all tactical, and in some instances, it's been incompetent in terms of how it's done that. So right now, I mean, there is this thing between the Democrats and the Republicans about who is tougher in China and who is a friend of China, right? And so you have the Trump administration in some of their... Uh, the Republicans in some of their ads accusing Joe Biden of being close to the Chinese and, and Democrats accusing the, the president of being close to the Chinese. So I think this thing is going to go further. But I think if we just forgot about the U.S. for a minute and just looked at Japan, I mean, Japan has actually been financing Japanese firms to, you know, take out of China some value chains of, of, of products that are used in Japan. And in instances where they, that those factories cannot be brought back to Japan, those factories have been sent to other countries in the in the ASEAN region. Right. And so uh, and um, in the last few um, weeks, a number of companies have moved to Indonesia and Malaysia and, and a lot of more companies are intending to do that in Europe. Um, Chancellor Angela Merkel has basically been by herself in terms of Germany's and her country's policy toward China, but that's changing now. So I, I think uh, outside the U.S., outside uh, Democratic and Republican uh, um, politics, there is a growing consensus in the West that it can't be business as usual with China. So I think regardless of who's president come November, that there's this, this trend is going to continue. I think that's right. I mean, I think both parties have uh, become more hawkish on China. Uh, but I do think that the, the Democrats approached this with more pragmatism. There was a piece in Foreign Affairs um, last year from Jake Sullivan and Kirk Campbell, who are, I think, really some of the lead thinkers when it comes to foreign policy. And I don't know if you guys read it, but I thought it was a, a pretty good preview of how perhaps a Biden administration would think about China. Uh, they said that the goal was, to the or the question was, how do you challenge and coexist with China? And so there was a focus on multilateralism, a focus on where do we need to cooperate with China, particularly around issues like climate change or pandemics, thinking about crisis management, how do you de-escalate? And finally, I really like this point that the U.S. needs to be about pro-democracy, not anti-China. And I think if you take that and contrast it to where the Republicans have been, or particularly Trump has been, I think you can see a way forward in terms of how do you manage China's rise, um, but being more sensitive to the contributions it makes and being more thoughtful about how do you work with partners who who see strengths and weaknesses engaging on both sides. Judd, when I was reading your article, I kept coming back to this idea that there is a moment now for the United States that they haven't had in the past, say, 10 years now in terms of the rise of China and Africa. Uh, China and under Xi Jinping 
in in my view, has absolutely overplayed its hand. It's, be, it's been way too aggressive. It's alienated allies in Europe, uh, certainly here in, in Asia. Uh, Africa, again, they've lost in many parts the civil society. Uh, views in the United States and Canada have hardened. It really is China against the world. And there's an opportunity here if the United States took the leadership role to actually, you know, as you suggested, not do this on their own. But what I kept coming back to was two different things. Number one, I don't know if the United States today has the legitimacy to lead the debate on democracy. I mean, let's be honest right now. We are in a moment in the United States where the Republican Party is doing everything it can to suppress the vote all the way up to hobbling the post office so it can't do mail-in ballots, to making it difficult in Texas to do voter uh, mail-in ballots, voter ID policies. I mean, everything that John Lewis fought for has, over the past 20 years, been slowly unraveling uh, in democracy promotion. When it comes to freedom of the press, when you see instant after instant after instant of law enforcement targeting journalists, arresting journalists, shooting journalists, the world is watching the United States right now. And so when I was reading your paper, I kept thinking, is this the United States of today or is this the United States of 20 years ago? And were you talking to the current administration or were you talking to a future Biden administration? Because last week I watched the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa, a committee you have testified in front of, and the level of idiocy in terms of the questions is shocking to me. And they are, they are so far behind you in terms of sophistication of how they view Africa that I just can't see how uh, these complex, nuanced, thoughtful ideas of yours would fit into their very simplistic kind of worldview. So I threw a lot at you with a lot of skepticism, but I'd like you to see if you can address some of those issues. Yeah. Uh, so first, I, I work for a bipartisan think tank, so I speak to, to both sides of the aisle um, and I'm hopeful that both sides will find value in what I said. But here's the controversial thing that I'm going to share. I think Trump's gift to the world is that U.S. diplomats uh, have been knocked off a little bit of their high horse when talking about democracy. And I think, actually, that the U.S. can be a more stronger advocate for democracy by being more humble about the conversation that it has with its counterparts. Too often, I don't think it was intentional, but too often a U.S. Uh, diplomat would talk to African counterparts and uh, talk about how incredible we are as a democracy and how Africans should learn from our trajectory. And now I think because of all of the things that you just mentioned, Eric, a U.S. diplomat should go to an African counterpart and say, we don't have it all. We're having challenges with our checks and balances. We are having some threats against our institutions. Our politics are polarized. And we are doing our best to work through that. And we are in a place where you are. We're all working to make this better. And let's work together. Share with us some of your experiences on how you've dealt with this. And we will do the same. And I think that's a really great place to lead. It's from a place of humility and a sense that we're on a road together and not that one has sort of made it past one level and, and others have not. And just one little fact that I, I always throw in when I do briefings is that 
while democracy is in recession in the rest of the world, 60% of Africans still believe in democratic principles. We've had 34 transitions of power since 2015. So Africans have a lot to teach us about growing as a democracy. And I think we have a lot to share about um, our setbacks as a democracy. And that's a great place to have a bilateral relationship. Can I just add to that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was going to say is that, you know, if we come back, I think it just, just brings us back to Eric's point at the beginning and uh over the last two weeks i've done these two threads one on just you know just showing the weakness of the the relationship with the west and then the second one was on the weakness of the chinese partnership i think what is left then is you know anybody following that is to turn to me and say but what then you know what do you propose then and this is where some of the things that he was talking about about south africa um, resistance on the huawei question kenya's resistance on the huawei question and i think it's, it's, it even makes sense that it would be a Kenya, it would be a Nigeria, it would be a South Africa. But what about the smaller ones? You know, in the thread that I gave this morning, I said that about 22 African countries have populations that are 5.5 million or below. Those countries are way too small for them to be assertive in the face of a giant like the U.S. or, or, or China. And I think what should happen then in terms of what does Africa expect of its partners? Because I think that's the way to shape the relationship in terms of the expectations. And instead of every single country out of the 54 trying to do it, I think a way of protecting the 54 and, and, and gaining concessions that are shared by the entire continent is to have these things we call the common Africa position. So on the common Africa, so for example, let's take technology, hardware and software. That there is a common Africa position that says that in selection of, of, of equipment for hardware or software in technology, we would not look at the national origin. We'll look at functionality. We'll look at price competitiveness. We'll look at interoperability between and among African countries. Those are the things that would define what we choose. So for example, if the U.S. Embassy in Togo, leans on the Togolese government to say you can't have Huawei here. They can say, "Listen, I would have listened if you know if it were possible, but we have a common Africa position now, and I can't be seen Togo as in flouting the common Africa position." What that does is that it protects the smaller states because in this thing, regardless of how much Africans say, how much I say, Africans don't want to be drawn into a Cold War. You inevitably are going to be drawn into that. And unless there is a common African position that protects the smaller states that, that are not the Kenyas and South Africans that can stand up for themselves, then they're increasingly going to be called into that. So regardless of the weaknesses in the U.S. system and the US, U.S. partnership or in the Western system and the Western partnerships, what does Africa actually want and what steps are the continent taking to be able to ensure that those are the kinds of partnerships it forms or those are the expectations and the demands that it makes of its partners? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and, and picking up on that point, I, w I wanted to ask you, um, for, from your perspective, um, how big a role does democracy versus no democracy play in the calculations that Africans make about, about the, the choice between the US and China? From my perspective, it seems that it's maybe not as big a part as I think maybe U.S. observers assume, notably because because a lot of African countries, you know, kind of one, one of the things that Africa has developed over many, many hard decades has been its own vision of its own, you know, its own version of, of democracy. So for me, it seems always seems that, that that development and development options count more and that one one way that 
you know, kind of one way for for the U.S. to um, to kind of grab imaginations in Africa is not necessarily through propagating democracy as as is, but more specifically to 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 really hook democracy to very innovative ways of 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 new forms of development. Something something in the line of um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's very vision of um, of of a Green New Deal, you know, and and the wider Green New Deal kind of concept. Um, you know, like, yeah, it's it's a bit of a loose question, but like, to to which extent do do you feel that there's a, that there's um, bandwidth in the U.S. to to take that kind of development centered approach rather than simply you know kind of reiterating yes, yes, democracy is great. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and this is uh, this is a this is a point I've tried to raise. It's like, and Judd mentions mentions this a bit about you know just being humble and, and actually instead of showing up in Africa and lecturing people, sometimes come and have conversations and listen, right? I mean, so it, it might sound counterintuitive, but the more democratic countries have become in Africa, the more they've turned to China. Why? Well, because if you're if if it is a, a heavily contested democratic space where elections are competitive, then the main problems in most African countries is the lack of infrastructure. So whoever is running for office is going to promise that he's going to deliver infrastructure. When he becomes president, when she becomes president, she or he is going to turn to the country most capable of meeting that need. And right now, bilaterally, China hands down. And so for 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 democratic governments, for democratic parties that are promising to deliver certain hard infrastructure to their people if they get elected, inevitably, they're going to turn to China. It doesn't mean that they're trying to import the Chinese version of, of, of governance. Then it doesn't mean they're trying to import. In fact, it is because they're responding to the needs of their people that they're turning to a partner who can provide that. So I think just in practical terms, Countries are turning to partners that are more capable of providing the things that they need. And this is one of the points that I make, that Africa has needs and interests that are unique to Africa and completely separate and distinct from whatever China wants or whatever the U.S. wants. And sometimes I think it gets lost in American foreign policy that there are unique needs that Africa has that have nothing to do with whatever conflict there is between the U.S. and China. And so African countries can be engaged simply because there is some sort of strategic value in a relationship with them, not simply because you're trying to take them away from one power. So I don't think, I mean, I'll just give you an example. When I was in government, in terms of choice of partners to build infrastructure, whether it was the hydro dam or uh, it was roads or it was bridges. We just, I mean, we, we had an Israeli firm supervising a Chinese contractor. We had a New, uh, a New Zealand uh, engineering firm supervising a Chinese contractor, right? We had uh, um, an Indian firm where we had Bangladeshis working. We, we turned to places that were price competitive for the quality we got. It, at no point... In any meeting that I participated in, either as an assistant to the president, an advisor to the president, or as a member of the president's cabinet, did we discuss the, the political system behind the assistance or behind the service we're purchasing? I, I, you know, so I, I think it is important for people to be able to understand that in, in the execution of government, in, in doing the things that we do, there are certain things that simply do not play in, in, in the choices that we make. I just wanted to add, because I think that Jude had made a really important point, and I just want to add one caveat to it, that I think he is right that in a democracy, there's a 
a good chance that you're going to turn to China so that you can deliver for your constituents and your voters. I also think that in a democracy, you have more, there's a greater likelihood that civil society, courts, legislators are going to expose any malfeasance. And that the question around China is going to be in the bloodstream. So you're not going to see debates around China in an authoritarian government. But Eric, just as you did in the newsletter this morning, Botswanan politicians are talking about it. Zambian politicians are talking about it. Nigeria, you know, National Assembly members are calling out China. So I think that they're going to be stuck in a marketplace of ideas around the quality of their work. What, how do they interface with the political system? So they may turn to China for development and for infrastructure, but it, China's not going to get a, a, you know, a straight pass in a democracy. They are going to be exposed to the vulgarities uh, of democracy, just like the U.S. and others will. And that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's what's really taking place in Nigeria, for better or for worse, and I say for worse only because there's an enormous amount of misinformation that is circulating within the the body politic in Nigeria, but that is the messiness of democracy and a free press and whatnot, good and bad kind of mixed together. That accountability uh, is definitely much more there than you say, for example, in Egypt, where you don't have a free press. And so to, to that point, I, I absolutely agree. Uh Judd, one of the key words that Jude keeps coming back to over and over again, and this is what we'll hear from other African stakeholders, is that word infrastructure. Uh, really, the corollary to infrastructure is cash, money. And the Chinese bring money to the table. And that is a really important difference between the United States. Now, the United States claims that it is now coming to Africa with money. So the U.S. Exim Bank did a $5 billion deal for a Mozambican LNG, a liquid natural gas plan, uh, program, but that's not infrastructure. That's that's again playing back in the old playbook that the United States invested in uh, African hydrocarbons. That's what our playbook was for the 20, 30 years in Nigeria and elsewhere. So I don't really see that as changing the narrative in any way. The Development Finance Corporation says it's now bringing money to Africa, but the, the amounts are actually quite small. Uh, it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars spread across the entire continent with no fixed end date on its on its budget compared to, say, the Chinese who are bringing $60 billion every three years in terms of financing packages. So there's a really big difference in terms of the money. And now we have to take into account that the United States is more in debt than it's ever been in its history and will probably go further into debt with more trillion-dollar relief packages to prop up its own economy. So the cash in the future is probably not going to be there, nor is there going to be the political will domestically to be spending a lot on building infrastructure in places like Africa when our own infrastructure at home is decrepit and falling apart. So if infrastructure is the word that Jude keeps coming back to, and we are short on cash and we lack the political will at home to fund infrastructure at home, what do we do? I think that in the first instance, right, the U.S. has to focus on the sectors that it is competitive in, and infrastructure is not one of them. There are some high-tech critical infrastructure, but in general, you know, we're not the road builders and the bridge builders for all the reasons that you just said uh, in terms of our own infrastructure. And I think that's where U.S. officials fall into traps by trying to compete with China on things that that really isn't our sectoral advantage. I do think that there is a different role for the U.S. to address this critical need, which is in its leadership and its convening power. And I alluded to this earlier. How do we work with uh, 
the World Bank and the IMF and other DFCs globally and do what, you know, why the U.S. could play the role that the Israeli uh, official played for Jude in Liberia, which is adding some of the engineering capacity, but maybe not the labor. So I think that the U.S. can play a role in infrastructure, but I think it's going to be a convener and organizer to help bring together uh, a, a number of different actors, private sector and public sector, to to lay out some values and principles on how we do it, um, to maybe have some niche roles. But I don't think that we're going to be building the Abuja-Kano Road. I just don't think that's where the U.S. is. And I think that's okay. The problem the, the conversation, the question sets me up to answer, Eric, is that we should be meeting China at every step on every single uh, initiative or in every single sector. And that's a losing game. I just don't think that that's really useful for anyone. We should be focusing on with the Africans, what are the kinds of principles around these investments that are important, getting some consensus around that, and then being a convener of choice to bring together a number of different actors to address those needs. But it doesn't have to be our companies. I, I think, uh, you know, and, and I keep coming back to this, that, um, that just the, the role of infrastructure. One of the things that we've seen over the outbreak of COVID-19 is just the, the, the speed at which digitization of the economy has become. And in, in a lot of places in Africa, we've seen an uptick on the use of e-commerce platforms and, and, and online um, businesses moving online. Most of that was accomplished on the backs of Chinese equipment, right? And, and those Chinese equipment were financed by Chinese loans. It's really, really, really hard to uh, do much in, in many parts of Africa now without in some way coming into contact with some sort of infrastructure, whether it's uh, electricity, it's roads, or it's rail that was built by the Chinese. It's hard. And telecommunications. Telecommunications, of course, to be able to see this. And so in a world in which we're told that the only reason the Chinese are here is to take advantage of you and we are seeing for ourselves, then it's almost like, you know, ignore your lying eyes and just listen to what, what I'm saying. And I think and this is the point that I made in my piece about not having a Western alternative. Now, it doesn't simply have to be just the United States. And this is one of the places where I feel like this administration has been different. It's not during the Cold War, the United States was supposedly the leader of the free world. It led a coalition of states against that form of government. In this stage, in this stage we see the U.S. going at it alone. The U.S. doesn't come to Africa with uh, um, Europe has been very, very aggressive over the last two years in terms of what the partnership with Africa should be, at least on paper. If, if it is a European American led initiative that we're going to try to provide some of this. I was talking to Judd the other day and said that uh, in February, there was a meeting in Germany, the European in International Contractors meeting, where they were complaining that in 2018, 62% of the infrastructure construction market in Africa was taken by Chinese firms. And so the Europeans were meeting to meet with their governments to see what else they could do. If there were a Western alternative, there are European firms that can do that. They don't necessarily have to be American firms. The American firms can bring on the engineering capacity. But until there is a like-for-like like alternative from the West, then China is the only option. I mean, of course, we can turn to the World Bank, we turn to the African Development Bank, but all of them combined are still less than the money that China spends 
Well, and so it's hard to imagine that only the iffies are going to be able to do that. There has to be some sort of state-led alternative to what China is doing. Otherwise, we will continue to turn to the Chinese because infrastructure is so important. Jude, kind of picking up on that on that that issue, um, how optimistic are you that the, that it is possible for for the U.S., you know, Canada, Europe, and so on to work together on this? Like, to which extent is there is there the money or the political will or the bandwidth to focus together on on African issues like that? Um, and if not, then what what do we see instead? I have great confidence in democracies. I mean, democracies can go from one end to the other, right? You can get an idiot who's elected and destroys the country, but then there's also a process whereby that idiot can be removed from office. And that is the great power and strength of a democracy. And, and that's not in a monarchy, because in a monarchy, the son who inherits a wise king's throne might end up being an idiot and there's no way to remove him. So we have, at least in a democracy, we have processes whereby we can change government. And that's, that's the, the abiding strength of a democracy. So I think that uh, there will be. I, I think there's changes. In, I've, I've, I've done some off-the-record briefings. I've, I've spoken to people active in the space here in terms of U.S.-Africa policy. And I think there is a significant substantive change in that direction. And I believe that if we can get enough if we can get enough Republicans thinking in this way and wanting to be able to do this and not, you know, demonizing this shift, I honestly believe that that's going to happen. I also think that the U.S. is going to be going forward, that the U.S. is either writing itself out of global decision making as, you know, leaving the TTP, um, TPP, leaving the, the WHO, walking away from the Paris Agreement, to a certain extent that eventually if the U.S. continues to do that, then there's going to be a Western coalition in which the U.S. is not a part that, that attempts at the very least to be able to counter that. So I am pretty hopeful. I mean, and part of what we do, part of what I'm trying to do is to, to in, inject into the, the general discourse the need for us to begin to have the conversation of what the Western alternative is going to look like. Judd, let's get your reflections on what's ahead in the next, say, three months until the election and then into 2021 and beyond in terms of U.S.-Africa policy. Well, it's really challenging right now to piece together um, the next couple of months if you look at the trajectory of this administration, um, you saw lots of schizophrenia early on as different parts of the administration were either um, replicating Obama policies, trying to guess what, what Trump policies would be. And then you sort of saw uh, them sort of land around the Biden speech, excuse me, land around the Bolton speech in December 2018. And then you saw, I think, surprisingly and welcome uh, some advancements around Prosper Africa, around um, whether it's sanctions on Cameroon, uh, some interesting stuff that you wouldn't have expected uh, in, in year three. But as we wrap up to year four, um, I think we're going to be back to schizophrenia. I think that it's everyone's going to be more sensitive about politics and about the elections. And I think you are going to see more of the, the China, um, anti-China, hawkish China talk. Um, I'm hopeful that they'll make just enough progress on Prosper Africa so that it has uh, some momentum. As you've talked about on the show, it, it keeps sort of getting um, undercut or, or, or lacking uh, enough oxygen to really define itself. Uh, but I do think we're in for a rocky start, or a rocky end, I should say. 
Um, and then after the election, um, you know, I don't speak for the Biden campaign, but if Biden's elected, I do think I share Jude's optimism that I think we'll be talking about a return to some of the the ways in which uh, Obama and, and Bush and Clinton thought about the continent. Um, my understanding, you can look at uh, Biden's interview on Council on Foreign Relations. He's talking about an urban initiative for Africa, which is near and dear to my heart. And I think that the way that that administration or the campaign seems to be thinking about Africa is about its global significance on climate change and on on health. And I think those are reasons to be optimistic if there's a change in government. The paper is a new U.S. policy framework for the African century. It's a CSIS brief written by Judd Devermont, the director of the Africa program at CSIS, an old friend of the program and really one of the smartest voices in Washington policy circles related to Africa. Judd, you are very active on Twitter. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to follow you? Sure, you can follow me at at Devermont. And not only do you get African news, but a little bit of uh, whatever Afrobeats artists I'm listening to. Okay. And then very quickly, you also host a podcast. Tell us a little bit about the podcast that you host. Yeah, we host a, a podcast. Uh, both All three of you have been on it. It's called Into Africa. Uh, we release every other Thursday. We talk about politics. We talk about paradigms. And we're in the midst of a a review of Africa's foreign relations. So we just released one on France. We have one on China coming up, the U.S., and then players like Japan, the Gulf, um, and India. So it's a, it's a really good run we're having right now. It's absolutely indispensable listening. Uh, thank you so much, Judd. We know you got to run, so we really appreciate your time today. Uh, Jude Moore is also with us, former Liberian Minister of Public Works and a currently a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. Uh, Judy, uh, you wrote Africa's position in the new Cold War on Twitter. Your Twitter feed is absolutely essential reading every day. What is your Twitter handle that people can follow if they want to stay in touch with you? It's Jude that more, and Jude is uh, G-Y-U-D-E, um, and uh, Please, uh, Jude underscore more. Yes, at Jude underscore more. Yes. And uh, we also have a podcast. Yes. We, uh, tell us about your show. That's right. So my colleague, uh, she's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an investor in Africa, too. She's been advising African governments. Her name is Aubrey Ruby. Smart, smart voice in American policy in Africa and American policy toward China and Africa. Uh, follow her, too. And so we have a podcast called New Think. And we try to just explore ideas that we believe have transformative impact or could have transformative impact in frontier markets, especially in Africa. So it's called New Think. We're going to put links to both of the podcasts, both of their Twitter feeds, and both of their essays, which is absolutely essential reading right now. All of this together, uh, I can't recommend you listening and following Jude and Judd. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to help enlighten us again at this very interesting time in U.S.-China-Africa relations. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me, man. Thank you for having us, and you have a great day. Thanks. Kobus, we ended the discussion with Jude and Judd on a rather optimistic, positive note. And I have to be honest with that. I don't share their optimism in any way whatsoever. Um, Judd's reference back to the Obama administration. If you recall, Obama was not very strong on Africa. This was a guy who let Africa policy kind of meander and wander. One of the themes that we've talked about 
over the past 10 years is how the United States was really disengaged from Africa, which gave the opening for the Chinese to kind of step in and play that that great power role because the United States left the vacancy there. I tend to think that the United States right now is so consumed with itself, is so divided, is so broken right now that it really cannot take that leadership role that Africa needs it to take in terms of bringing the cash, bringing the capital. It's destroyed so much of its international credibility with its traditional allies in Europe, much less here in Asia, that its ability to mount a coalition against the Chinese, to me, is not going to happen anytime in the short term. Conversely, I think the Chinese, again, as I mentioned the show, have way overplayed their hand. They're burning through the great credibility that they beat, that they earned in Africa over 10, 15 years. Now they've alienated vast parts of civil society. They've overplayed their hand in Europe. Uh, again, them losing the UK and France on Huawei uh, was unnecessary in many ways because I think that uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy, this aggressive diplomacy that they've engaged in, uh, has, has really turned a lot of people off. And at the end of the day, Africa is going to be sitting there and it's going to have to carve its own path. And that's what we're seeing in Kenya, but we're not seeing it in enough other countries right now. Specifically in South Africa, I haven't heard anything coming out of your government the way that we're seeing coming out of the state house in Nairobi. No, um, no. I think my government is very preoccupied with its own issues. Like I think South Africa faces a lot of similar kind of issues as the US in the sense. Um, I agree with you. I think the, you know, I realize that at the moment where where the US is at the moment, the getting back to to Obama era kind of Africa policy would be a major step forward. And um, but that's only relative to the but, dysfunction we have today. That's not actually getting us to a place yes. of something that's ideal. Exactly. The the like you know kind of in, in a lot of cases it's 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 a classic example of how post COVID we need some kind of like new new vision you know rather than trying to return to the old normal um, because the old normal didn't didn't work and particularly the in the in U.S. Africa terms the old normal didn't work. Um, it's and I think but the thing is I think in in a lot of ways the whatever kind of new transformative uh, relationship with Africa the U.S. will develop it will have to come from within the U.S. Um, because you know like, you know Africans aren't blind they they they're looking at they're looking at the U.S. they're following U.S. media they're seeing they're seeing kind of situations like the Black Lives Matter protests. Or like you know, kind of overly aggressive policing, all of these different structural problems, and that if if the U.S. comes up with a with a really innovative solution to its own structural problems, the, many of those solutions would be applicable to Africa as well. If they don't come up with any of those solutions, then from what basis are they talking to Africa at all? Um, you know, the the reason the reason that China kind of has so much traction in Africa is not because because you know kind of Africans somehow love Chinese communism. It's because China is a non-Western country that came from extreme poverty and managed to develop itself dizzyingly over 40 years. Very few other countries you know, bring that to the table. Um, and if, if there are actual development plans in Europe and, and, and America that can equal that, bring them on. Like everyone would be very happy to hear them. But the, my feeling is that those plans don't exist. And you know, kind of, if the plans aren't there, then no matter no no amount of political will or strategic maneuvering or you know kind of you know commitments to multilateralism are going to make them be there. Like there, there there has to be a you know like bringing bringing um, you know internet connections to rural Ohio is the same problem as bringing it to rural Gabon. You know if if you can't make the one work, you won't be able to make the other one work. Earlier this month, 
or maybe it was the end of last month, I wrote a column uh, for the newsletter, and that's on the website, ChinaAfricaProject.com, which basically said that Africa screwed and it's going to be on its own for debt. That we are now six or seven months into this financial crisis, and we haven't seen any meaningful debt relief come through. The DSSI, the the debts, uh, what's the debt service suspension initiative from the G20, is more or less a bust. The IMF and the World Bank have come up with, you know, small billions uh, of relief, but nowhere near the hundred billion that people like Vera Songwe at the United Nations was asking for. They're on their own. Okay, because if something was going to happen, it would have happened by now. And at the end of the day, Europe and the United States, Japan and China have been passing multi-trillion dollar relief packages, and they couldn't find a way to muster up even $100 billion, which is couch change right now, sofa change in the context of the relief packages that we're talking about today. So at the end of the day, I think they're going to let Africa fall off the map on debt relief. And I, and I, and I wrote that in the column, and I got a furious response from a senior level US government official who demanded uh, a correction and demanded that, how dare I compare what the US is doing to China? And I responded to her by saying, excuse me, did I miss something? Did I miss where the United States was pulling together the Wall Street banks to ease up on the fiduciary legal responsibilities to, to in order to do private credit or debt relief? Did I miss the special drawing rights meeting at the, at the International Monetary Fund? to expand the capital pool for developing countries, which the United States has been objecting to because it doesn't want Iran and China to also have access to those SDRs? Did I miss the pulling together of the creditor countries to really make a, a big cash injection to give African countries the capital they need to pay for public health and to do meaningful debt relief? I must have missed all of that. And there is zero creativity on the part of U.S. policymakers to do that when they have all the ability because those banks, Jamie Dimon is based in New York, and they're not doing anything, nothing. And so all of this talk about democracy promotion and how the U.S. is a better partner when there are low-hanging fruit that they could do things and they're doing nothing. And to be sure, the Chinese are equally culpable in this. The Chinese are dragging their feet and they're making sure that every single African creditor is going to pay. They're going to, a borrower, every single penny is going to be put back. They're, it's merciless. And, and so I think they're going to be all written off. I think next year at this time, we're going to be looking at an Africa that is in very, very, in a very bad place. I mean, COVID is going to ravage their economies these, these great powers are going to be focused on themselves. And, and at the end of the day, I, I think they're going to get steamrolled. Yeah, but you know what's what's interesting, you know, kind of in, in, in that view is that I think is that to a certain extent that view, I mean, realistically, but also a, a, lo a lot of the ways that that these these big powers um, deal with Africa has a, a certain kind of built-in assumption that Africa is always quite passive and quite kind of you know kind of acquiescent and, and and that there isn't much that Africa can do. Of course, Africa. I think the one the one thing that no one really I think is taking into account is that Africa can be a lot more of a hand than it is at the moment for international actors you know like like the if 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 we see a situation like like you mentioning like you know kind of with with massive with african growth being being pushed back several years with with mass you know kind of chaos in 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 uh, economies that that at the beginning of this year that seemed like they were they were really flourishing then africa is 
you know, kind of will, will I think be a lot more of a disruptive actor on the international stage. Um, we're talking mass radicalization, mass migration. Africa is going to become a problem in, in a way that Africa hasn't been a problem for a long time. And you know what? Then, then you know, kind of we, we will have to see how that how that plays out. Yeah, but what drives me crazy about what you're saying, though, is that it's going to be 20 times more expensive to deal with the problem when you have political and societal failure and mass migration than it would be right now to inject $100 billion. The United States spent $6 trillion on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Trillion. And we're talking about hundreds of billions right now to really get Africa out of the mess. Now, they're not going to do it because in the United States, there just isn't the political will to do it. People are so obsessed with China inside the Washington Beltway. You know, there's this old saying, uh, it, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to get money uh, out of the U.S. government, you just put al-Qaeda or ISIS at the top of your proposal. Today, you just put China at the top of your proposal and you get money. The single-mindedness that people have about China, and I think so many other policy priorities like Africa, and not just Africa, by the way, I think other parts of the world are also going to get lost as well. So, it's, I mean, I sound down and I know that people are going to find that to be rather off-putting, but I don't see a lot of optim, a lot of room for optimism right now, even if we have a, a Biden presidency, because Joseph Biden is going to have to be spending the next two, three years pulling his country out of the morass. Uh, and let's not assume that Biden's going to win either. The polls were wrong in 2016. They might be wrong again this time. We don't know. But I don't necessarily want to assume and be one of those people that says automatically Biden's going to win. So, but, you know, it's depressing. Well, you know, but but the thing is, you know, it's what what's interesting is, <laughs> or one one of the ironies is that if that happens, um, and I agree with you that there's a good chance that it, that that you know there won't be any bandwidth for any kind of engagement with Africa over the next while. Um, if that happens, then what it ends up being is a, is a kind of a justification of, of a very pessimistic African view of the China-Africa-US relationship, that both the US and China are essentially the same, that they that they are only interested in, in their own expansion of power, that Africa is nothing to them, um, and that, that some kind of like African isolationist kind of solution is the only one that that's going. But don't you get a sense that's already starting to happen, that even the the rosiness of the relationship with China has faded a little bit uh, from the African side, that they're looking at it much more pragmatically. And I think Guangzhou was important in that, but also the debt talks right now, there's a coldness in the relationship that hasn't been there in, in the past. Yes, I completely, I, I, I completely agree with you, um, and that I think is itself is going to be very interesting um, because you know it's this is happening. You know, the, the West tends to take African moves towards multilateralism as a win for Western systems simply because the West thinks of itself as multilateral, but in in reality that might not be the truth. You know, kind of it, what what might be if if Africa develops stronger multilateralism within the continent, that could just as easily be used to push out Western actors as easily as Chinese actors so um you know kind of so so we'll have to see like i think i think africa is going to become more hardcore over the next while but i think what that hardcoreness is going to look like is, it depends a lot on what happens in other countries but they also need to to focus up the debate a little bit because the debate in nigeria about debt regarding the chinese has been nothing short of absurd 
really has been absurd. And this whole idea that China is going to conquer and debt trap all, you know, and repossess strategic assets with 3% or 3.94% of Nigeria's total external debt, which a big chunk of it, they've already been starting to pay off. And yet nobody says anything about the 40% of Nigeria's external debt that's owned by private creditors. That is the absurdity of all of this, that somehow the private creditors are getting a pass on this and everybody in Nigeria is freaking out or Zambia is freaking out over, over the Chinese. And, and yet, and again, I just think it fits these historical narratives that are very emotive. They're very deeply held. I get where they're coming from, but they're missing the point. The point is you have a lot more to be concerned about that Moody's, S&P, and Fitch are going to downgrade you and force you to country now to pay huge amounts in extra borrowing costs than you're going to be worrying about the Chinese taking over your national broadcaster. But, you know, kind of like that that, that discussion still assumes, uh, you know, kind of a, a particular way that Africa is inserted into the world economy, like, you know, where, where it is beholden to, to ratings agencies. The other option is that Africa in some kind of ways that, that Africa becomes a world economy-less zone, you know, kind of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of disruption that, that could be caused by, by this, the current debt situation. You know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of kind of unknown unknowns out there, you know, that, that what, you know, kind of what, what yeah, what, that, that could be elicited by this kind, that could be triggered by this kind of situation. Um, you know, the assumption that Africa will just always be play will be playing the the kind of role in the global economy it is at the moment. I think is is a flawed one. I, I think I get the sense that the way that more African policymakers are approaching this is that they're saying, okay, like what Jude was saying, we're going to take what we need from China, we're going to take what we need from the Europeans, and we're going to take what we need from the United States without committing any allegiance to any of these. That is, I think there's a much more real politic approach to, to foreign policy. And to me, that's the smart way to go. But I don't think we should pretend that there's a happy, rosy ending, at least in the next six to 12 months, until we know how COVID plays out and the impact that it's going to have on the economy. It's, it's to me, just from somebody who sits and writes about this every day, the situation doesn't seem to be getting any better. No, and I, and I I don't think it's it's realistic for Western for Westerners to assume that just because you know just because Africa has a bunch of problems with with China or like it's picking fights with China on issues like debt that they, that that means that they're aligned with the West. I don't think that's going to be true. It's not binary. So this is a very passionate topic for us, as you can see. It's a it's a really fascinating time to be watching all of the different pieces that are moving. Again, Kenya to me is one of the most interesting countries to watch how they are articulating a space in between the Chinese and Africans. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, between the U.S. and Chinese, and that is to me very very interesting. Hopefully, other countries are going to be doing the same because it's absolutely essential if they don't carve out the space it will be carved for them. That's how it happened in the last Cold War. That's how it will happen in this next new era of U.S.-China relations. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. Uh, you've heard us throughout the show reference the newsletter. Uh, Jude and Judd get it every day, and a lot of their peers in Washington get it every day. Um, and, and these are the kinds of things that we're hashing out. We're figuring out with people like Jude and Judd. Judd has written a couple essays for us that go into the newsletter. So if this is something that you are interested in, we would love for you to become a part of our growing reader community around the world. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Enter the promo code podcast and we'll take $50 off the subscription fee from $149 down to $99. 
And we put a lot of work into this newsletter, almost 12 hours a day, every day to put this together. And we're really trying to capture the day's conversations. Again, a lot of primary source information. It goes out to decision makers, scholars, journalists, analysts around the world. So if you want to subscribe, once again, ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Enter that promo code podcast and get the big discount. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. 